Amen. Amen. Okay, Numbers chapter 31. As we continue our way through the book of Numbers together, we're on the edge of the promised land with the children of Israel, and now God will direct them uh, to engage, as we see in chapter 31, in another battle. They've had a few military conflicts on the eastern side of the Jordan, and some of this is sort of just basic training, getting ready, getting prepared, as they ultimately, in the book of Joshua, we'll see, will go in and take possession of the land. That will involve many military conflicts and God directing them in battles, teaching them how to have victory over their enemies. And so some of these things are just preparing them and readying them. And of course, at the same time, we'll see that sometimes as as always when God is leading us to do something God ultimately has a greater purpose and we'll see that's the case here in chapter 31 not only is God preparing them and teaching them how to overcome and how to accomplish his victory in battles by his presence and his power being the one that's behind what takes place in their dependence upon the Lord but ultimately we'll see here God is even using the nation of Israel as an instrument judicially uh, to actually exercise uh, in a sense his judgment upon an ungodly nation and a people who had become in a sense so deplorable in their conditions their morality and their practices uh, that God needed to actually exterminate their presence because of the plague uh, that they had actually become on the earth at that time you remember all the way back to the book of Genesis where God spoke there about how the iniquity of the Amorites had not yet reached its fulfillment and how it would be a process of hundreds of years that God would patiently endure with this particular people group that that generalization of the Amorites God was referring to some of these pagan nations that we'll see God dealing with uh, and leading Israel as an instrument to in a sense cleanse the land of but yet God had endured with these people we have to understand hundreds of years in their conditions and we need to realize we don't always remember uh, as we look at these things uh, historically and you can do some research that some of these people groups that God asked the people to launch a military conflict about these are people groups that have been engaged in all kinds of ungodly and wicked practices from not only just uh, you know unrestrained uh, sexual immorality heterosexually homosexually uh, bestiality the offering and sacrificing of their live children and fires to gods like Molech and so forth I mean the practices of these people uh, were beyond in many ways what we could comprehend and really were practices uh, that ultimately would have just self-destructed them as a people group anyway and because of their condition it's almost as if and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here but just want to set this as a backdrop in your mind as we look at this it would be as if you went into a playground of children and then all of a sudden you notice a rabid dog comes into the midst that's clearly foaming at the mouth it's demonstrating all the symptoms of rabies which of course ultimately uh, is going to kill that animal that animal is going to die in that condition because of the rabies the animal itself it's going to perish anyway uh, and therefore, it would be wise, it would be good stewardship, it actually would be love to do something to terminate the life of that rabid animal before it bit and inflicted and affected other children and took their lives innocently. So in a sense, it would be an act of love to actually 
take the life of that animal because it's going to die anyway before it further infected and caused more corruption among the children that were endangered. And we have to understand, there are times, historically, we we see where God has intervened in these ways because of the condition of humanity becoming so corrupt. And chapter 31 is one of those occasions, and that is one of the reasons why God leads them into this military conflict. Part of it is because of what they did and the danger they were to the children of Israel. But another part of this also we need to understand historically is because of how corrupt these people had become at this time after hundreds and hundreds of years of God's forbearance uh, and God therefore leading them to do these things. So chapter 31, again, we see the Lord spoke to Moses, a very common phrase. God is a God who delights to speak and he often spoke very directly to Moses as the spiritual leader of that congregation saying to him, notice, take vengeance. The idea literally there is to avenge because of what the Midianites had done to them. We saw back in chapter 25, that whole plague that arose there because of the Midianite women seducing the Israeli men into their idolatry and sexual immorality. So now God is telling Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites, notice, for the children of Israel. And afterward, God says, you shall be gathered to your people. So again, another reference to the upcoming death of Moses that Moses soon, as God notified him in prior chapters, would soon be dying. His life would soon be coming to an end. Again, the Bible refers to it as him being gathered to his people. Again, not the cessation of his life, the continuation of his life in a different realm with a different congregation, that is the saints of God who had gone on before him, Aaron and others who had already died who were believers as well. And yet here God now tells Moses, take note, he says, Moses, but before you're gathered to your people, there's one more battle that I still need for you to fight. In other words, Moses, there's one more thing, one more task that I still need for you to accomplish that's part of my plan and purpose for your existence before you die and before you come home into the presence of God and with the people of God. And notice it involves what? A battle, (laughs) which is just a reminder to us that here's the reality. As long as we're still breathing, there are going to be constant and continuous battles that we're going to fight and we're going to endure all throughout this life, even as the people of God. You know, I think we have this very immature, naive idea if we think, well, I mean, I'm following Jesus now. I'm a child of God, so can't I just find the spout, the spout where the blessing flows out and just kind of sit under that with my little umbrella and, you know, my, my uh, cup of tea and my straw? And I mean, isn't that how it works when the reality is, no, the truth be told, and this sounds real encouraging, I'm probably really glad you came to Bible study tonight, uh, The Bible teaches that when you accept Jesus Christ, in a sense, you transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, in a sense, enter into the Lord's army, and therefore you then enter into the battle. That's getting drafted. The Bible says that Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. He tells Timothy that a good soldier must endure hardship. And so there is a battle. There are battles to fight even as God's people. And life, just because we live in a fallen world, is going to be filled with battles. There are battles because of spiritual resistance and spiritual warfare and those kind of things. But just living life in and of itself with struggles and 
challenges and a fallen world and illness and disease and difficulty and trials and temptations, there are always going to be continuous battles that we are fighting. And look, the wonderful thing is that the Lord wants to help us in those battles. In fact, there are times where the Bible says, look, the battle belongs to the Lord. We belong to him, and if we're fighting his battles, we're on the winning side, and therefore we can take encouragement, even when we have to enter in to things that cause conflict and battles. And here the Lord says, Moses, I have one more battle for you before you come home. Moses, until you fight this last battle, life's not over. And I think this is just a reminder again, too, of that reality that... You and I, as God's people, will not die. We will not depart from this planet until we have fulfilled every purpose and intention that God has for our lives. God says, Moses, one more battle, and then you'll be gathered to me. But Moses, uh, you can't escape that battle. There's one more thing that I have for you to do. And for some of you this evening, you may be pondering through, and, and the Lord may be saying, look, there's a few more battles. There's at least one more battle. There's something that is not resolved yet, something that is still left to be accomplished, and you're a part of it, and I need you around to fulfill it, and therefore you have to continue to endure, to engage, to faithfully serve me, be a good soldier. And he says, look, and when that battle's done, then you'll be gathered, then you'll be removed. And here Moses being told now, Moses, one more battle. Afterward, he says, you'll be gathered to your people. So Moses, understanding that God now wants to avenge the children of Israel because of what the Midianites did to them and caused such a great devastation among their people. Verse three, so Moses spoke to the people saying, notice, arm some of yourselves for war and let them go against the Midianites. Now notice the language, verse three, to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. So take notice, this is God's battle. This is indeed a divinely determined and decreed military conflict. The Bible says here, under the Spirit of God, that they were to engage the Midianites in warfare to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian because of what Midian had done to God's people, to the children of Israel. Again, the Bible teaches us that we are not to avenge ourselves. Why? For one very simple reason I can tell you up front is because we won't do a good job with that. We don't know when it's right to avenge ourselves. We don't know how to control avenging ourselves or repaying back to people. Again, you, know, you poke me in one eye, I want to poke both of your eyes, slap your face, pull out a chunk of your hair, kick you where the sun don't shine and do a few other things because that's just my nature. That's how I would avenge myself. We always take it to an extreme. There's no restraint. There's no self-control. We don't possess those things. We're not just. We're not righteous. We don't have the ability to manage and use mercy and restraint. And yet God can exercise vengeance because God is just. And God will always do it when it is justly due. He doesn't do it prematurely. He waits until it is absolutely righteous. In fact, he waits until actually it would be unjust for him not to avenge a situation or certain people. So, so there, God waits to that occasion where if he didn't judge, it would be wrong if he didn't judge. And because God can do it in a measured way, in a controlled way that is wise with good stewardship and restraint, therefore God can bring vengeance. It's just not something that's to be under our stewardship. 
So here, they are doing this on behalf of the Lord. Take vengeance for the Lord on Midian, which means this. In essence, what God is doing is he's using Israel militarily as his instrument. That's all they are. They're an instrument of God in the military warfare they're going to do. They are just simply God's instrument as a people in a military to accomplish God's purpose on those Midianite people because God needs to bring judgment upon them for what they have done. So here he says, verse four, a thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel shall you send to the war. So a 12,000 man army, which is quite small, we'll see, which is God beginning to teach them lessons. They'll have a very small army in comparison to who they fight against. And at this point now, God tells them, gather again a thousand from each tribe. So they were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war, and Moses sent them to war. 1,000 from each tribe, he sent them to war, notice, with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and again, no doubt the reason why, because part of this was a spiritual battle. If you remember Numbers 25, when all of that sexual immorality took place with the Midianite women, that at one point that man came through the camp right near the tabernacle where all the spiritual leaders were gathered and was so brazen with the woman that was with them, the Midianite woman that they went to attend. And Phineas was so shocked by the brazen, unrestrained immorality. They're almost flaunting their sin when there are people dying all around them. Phineas, remember, wanting to make a point quite literally with his spear, remember, followed them into their tent and put the spear right through both of them to execute them. And it was that very act of zealousness and righteousness for God, that zeal for God, that was the thing that God looked upon favorably that Phineas did that ended the plague that caused it to cease when still 24,000 people had died. So no doubt here God says that man has zeal and he's righteous. I don't care if he can't even pick up a sword. His heart is in tune with me. So therefore, Joshua, anyone else who's going out to warfare, there needs to be a spiritual component to this as well. So Phineas goes out with the 12,000 soldiers as well as notice the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand, which was how they would rally troops with those silver trumpets. Verse 7, And they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all the males. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Evi and Rechem, Zur and Hur and Reba, and the five kings of Midian. Notice also is at this point Balaam, the son of Baor, they also killed with a sword. So it was at this point, notice that Balaam, remember, who was the one hired by Balak, the king of that area, to come and curse the people. And because he loved the wages of iniquity, because he was a greedy man, he came, though God told him not to come, and he tried multiple times to curse the people. It never succeeded. But yet the greed is what kept him around. And you can see that his heart is still after greed and iniquity because where's he at now? He's hanging out among the enemies of God. He's hanging out among the unrighteous. And it's at this point now in this military conflict that Balaam is there among the Midianites and Balaam is killed and executed at this time as well. Now, here's what's interesting. Remember Balaam at one point when he was speaking these prophecies as God would fill his mouth. At one point, as he looked upon the Israelites as God's people, he said, Oh, that I might die the death of the righteous, that my end might be as his. Again, he realized, wow, 
man, to, to be able to experience what these people are going to experience. But here's the thing. He doesn't die the death of the righteous. He dies the death of the unrighteous. And here's the reason why. Because you can't live unrighteous and expect to die the death of the righteous. The way that you live is how you're going to die. And, and here, he, oh, I wish I could die like the righteous. Everybody wants to die like the righteous, right? Want to live like hell, but I please want to go to heaven. Oh, I want to die the death of the righteous, but do you want to live the life of the righteous? And because he didn't live the life of the righteous, we see him now here. Why does he lose his life? Because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time and he's with the unrighteous. He's with the enemies of God and therefore consequentially he ends up suffering death in this battle. He's killed with the sword in the midst of all these things. Verse 9, the children of Israel then took the women of Midian captive with their little ones and took as spoil all their cattle and their flocks and their goods and they burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt and all their forts. And they took all the spoil and the booty of man and beast and they brought the captives and the booty and the spoil to Moses, to Eleazar the priest and the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp and the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And Moses, Eleazar the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. So they're now returning from this great victory with all the spoils of war and captive people. They brought back the women captive from Midian and they've had this great victory. We'll see at the end of the chapter an incredible miraculous victory. Victory. And yet, as they come back now and they're greeted by Moses and Eliezer the priest, you would think there would be great celebration. That's what they're thinking. Hey, we went out to war. We had a great victory. We brought back spoils of war. But look at verse 14. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army and the captains over thousands and captain over hundreds who had come from the battle. Why? Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Verse 16, here's the key. Look, he says, these women, these very women who you spared, he says, these women are the ones that caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman, referring to those women, who has known a man intimately. So as they come back, Moses sees the women have been spared and Moses is incensed He's, as he looks at this. What are you doing? Why would you have spared? And he look at verse 16. These are the very ones who actually deliberately deliberately drew the men into idolatry and sexual immorality that caused a plague of 24,000 people to die among the children of Israel. These are the very individuals who purposely, deliberately used their lives, these women, in a seductive way to destroy the people of God with purposeful intention. Again, these weren't innocent victims here. These were women who seductively, with evil intent, sought to draw the Israelite men into idolatry and immorality that caused a horrible plague among the people of God. So as Moses looks at this, he says, well, what are you doing? 
you're sparing the very thing and you're sparing the very ones who drew us into all the plague and the problem that we got into. You should have removed them lest they be a temptation once again. Very interesting here to take note that in a sense, Moses is angry because they wrongly spared when they should not have spared. In a sense, he's angry because they showed mercy. But see, it really wasn't mercy. What were they doing? Think about it. They were sparing the very thing that was gratifying and appealing to their flesh. Because that's what those women were. Those women were women who seduced sexually. and So they spared what was gratifying and what, in a sense, provided an opportunity for the indulgement of the flesh. And Moses says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you need to remove any opportunity where the flesh can destroy and drag down. And these are not innocent victims. These were guilty individuals who deliberately drew them off track spiritually. And God did not want them being able to be drawn back into that same thing again. So God says they need to be killed. Everyone who's known a man intimately of those who did that, those women need to be put to death as well as he says every male among the little ones. And again, the reason why is because those males would grow up to be soldiers and warriors trained like, unfortunately, even some of the groups that exist today. They they, they raise those little children from a certain age to basically just destroy and kill people. And God, knowing this, said, look, then you need to eradicate them or else they will be an ongoing threat down the road. And I want you to see, look, verse 18, notice there's mercy and grace in this. But God says, keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately, those who are still virgins, who had not engaged in the incident that caused the plague back in chapter 25. So again, you take notice there, even from verse 18, as I said earlier, notice there's restraint. God didn't say just wipe out everybody. God could have done that. It was, this isn't God just in an out-of-control way blowing his top like we would where, where we just mow everything and everyone down in the emotion of the moment. This isn't God just in anger losing control and saying just obliterate everybody. No, this is very measured. It's very calculated, the judgment of God here, dealing with those who are the guilty party, dealing with those who could be an ongoing threat to the nation of Israel in the future. But God says, spare those who are innocent, that they not become innocent victims of war. Verse 19, and as for you, remain outside the camp seven days, God says. Whoever's killed any person, whoever's touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. And purify every garment and everything made of leather and every woven thing of goat's hair and everything made of wood. And then Eliezer the priest said to those men of war who were involved in that military conflict who had gone out to the battle, this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can endure the fire, you shall put through the fire and it shall be clean. And it shall be purified with the water of purification, but all that cannot endure the fire you shall put through water and you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean and afterward you may come into the camp. So what God is doing here with the soldiers, the 12,000 from war, is God's putting them through a period of ritual cleansing. They had just been engaged in military conflict. 
They had become defiled because of the touching of the dead bodies and the shedding of blood in the way they did. And, and, and so God says there needs to be a time this week of ritual cleansing, a process they were to go through before they engaged back into society. And, and boy, I look at this too and I think there's something very you know, very wise and, and spiritually sensitive about it. These men had just been engaged in conflict, taking the lives of other human beings. And God says, you know what? I don't ever want you to be just, you know, uh, you know sort of haphazard about that and think that's, that's something that you should be, you know, lightly or trivially going about. So God says, you need to take a week. And you need to process that a little bit and just just process that a little bit and go through a time of ritual cleansing before you just engage back into the society and the culture. So he asked them to take this week and to put some of the implements that were used through the fire and the water, a cleansing process, verse 23 and 24, the metals and things that could endure the heat were put through the purification of fire but those things that could not endure the fire were then put through purification through water and again of course just you know very beautiful pictures there of how God's you know purifying works purification through fire and through water Peter refers to our trials as fiery trials which purify our faith and refine it like gold and make it more pure and more valuable and the Bible speaks of the washing of water as a reminder of the word of God and how God's word can wash us and bring purification and in our lives as we go through battles and as we go through conflicts and as we as well at times need to be radical in the removal and the exterminating of the things that would draw us back into sin and we have to be serious and say you know what look it may look like that this is awfully radical man you're being overly radical i mean you just you're just going to completely cut that off you're going to just put that to death? You're going to just end that relationship? Or you're going to just, I mean, be that radical? You're just going to throw your computer out? I mean, that's a little radical, isn't it? To, to, and when we do radical things in the same way, God's working in our lives. And God many times will use the same type things to bring purification in our lives. God purifies us through fiery trials as he takes us through things and, and he lets the fires of life and trials be the very things that bring up to the surface the impurities in our lives as we're dealing with battles and conflicts and God allows the heat to be turned up and those are the things, the fiery trials and the word of God that wash and cleanse us as God reveals things to us in the midst of our battles and conflicts and challenges. But again, the heart in that is that God wants to not only work through us, but he also wants to work in us. And, and even as he's working through us, his greatest ideal is to work in us. You know, always remember, God is much more interested in the workman than he is the work. And a lot of times, Lord, I want to work for you, I want to work for you, and God's, well, that's good, but I'm also way more interested in you as the worker than I am just in the work that I can get out of you. Again, God looks at us as children before he does employees and laborers to do things for him. So verse 25, the Lord then spoke to Moses, telling him to then count up the plunder that was taken of man and beast, you and Eliezer, the priest and the chief fathers of the congregation, and divide the plunder then into due parts. So half to each different group between those who took part in the war and those who went out to battle and among all the congregations. So among all the spoil that was brought, half of it was given to the 12,000 soldiers that went out to the battle. The other half was given to the other perhaps 2 million people in the congregation. Now, 
Obviously, there's a greater reward for those who went out to the battle and risked their necks and put their lives in jeopardy. But I want you to see here that the victory that those 12,000 obtained and accomplished, that the entire congregation shared in the victory. There's a sharing here of the spoils. There's a sharing here of the victory. Ultimately, in 1 Samuel 30, David will implement this as a principle a principle of how they were to divide the spoils of war that those who went out to fight and those who stay behind with the stuff share alike in the reward. And of course, it's a principle of how spiritually that's often the case with us. Sometimes there are some that go out and do the fighting on the front lines. There are others who stay behind and hold down the fort. And God says, look, whether you're on the missionary front line or whether you're the person writing the check and praying for the missionary back with the stuff, keeping them supported, God says, look, you share alike in the reward. There's a sharing in it. There's an equal participation in the spoils and the rewards of that. And as I look at this too, what a great reminder how the victory of some of God's people became a victory for all of God's people. And boy, we need to remember that. The Bible says when one member suffers, we all suffer. And when one member, in a sense, is honored, we all rejoice with that. And look, the reason why it's important that we obtain victory in the battles of our spiritual life, the reason why victory is important is because your victory brings victory for other people. Your victory over sin brings victory for other people. Because when you're being defeated by sin, that brings problems and defeat for everybody else who's having to suffer the struggles of your sin that you're being defeated by. And in the same way, when you get victory over sin or you have victory in some area of your spiritual life and you start to walk in God's best and God's will, that brings victory for everybody else. And others can share in that same victory. So here, there's this division now, half to the soldiers, half to the rest of the congregation. And then verse 28, God says, "...and levy a tribute for the Lord." on the men of war who went out to battle, one of every 500 of the persons of the cattle, the donkeys and the sheep, take it from their half and give it to Eliezer the priest as a heave offering. So out of that uh, portion that was given to them, notice uh, literally verse 28 there, that's less than a quarter of a percent. So very minimal amount, but he says lay a tribute or a tax upon that and give a portion of that to support Eliezer the priest as an offering to him. That's from the soldier's amount. And from the children of Israel, the rest of the congregation who got the other half, they, notice, were to levy a tribute of one of every 50. So that's a 2% tax, in a sense, or tribute that they were to take of the donkeys and the sheep and all the livestock. And they were to give that to the Levites, to the other ministers who kept the charge of the tabernacle of the Lord, so Moses and Eliezer the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. So they each took a portion. Obviously, the percentage of the those who went out to battle was much less so that they would be rewarded more highly, as I said, because they were engaged in the actual warfare itself. And the other group gave about 2% to help give something to support the Levites in the function of ministry among the tabernacle. Well, verse 32 then gives a little description of all of these spoils remaining from the plunder, it says, which the men of war had taken, and look at this, was 675,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. (laughs) That's a lot of animals there. 675,000 sheep. This is how much plunder they got from this battle. 
72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, 32,000 persons in all, just of the women who had not known a man intimately that they were told to spare. So again, I want you to see that that's a huge victory. This is a huge victory. You know, historians and commentators kind of use some of these ratios here to give an indication that, that the, probably the size or population of Midian that was defeated here, given some of these numbers and things were given, was probably a people group of about 100 and maybe 50,000 people. How many Israelites went out and fought them? 12,000. 12,000, you want to talk about odds? 12,000 went out against 150 or so thousand and verse 36, half the portion who had gone out to war was the number 337,500 sheep. And verse 37, notice, and out of that, it's telling us now, again, these are the calculations of the half of a quarter of a percent and then the 2%. These are just the calculations given here. Verse 37, the Lord's tribute of the sheep was 675 uh, again, the cattle were 36,000, for which the Lord's tribute was 72. The donkeys were 30,500, of which the Lord's tribute, calculating that out, was 61. So, again, this just shows to us the calculations. It shows us that God keeps accurate records. And it also shows us this, I think the underlying principle, God's aware of our giving. Because, I mean, you want to talk about the Lord's tribute? 61. God, God knew exactly what they were doing. God told them to, to manage these spoils in this way, to take a portion, to give a portion to Eliezer, a portion to the Levites. And notice that God is completely aware of their giving, exactly how they went about it. And, you know, that's, honestly, that should be an encouragement to us. It shouldn't be a discouragement. I hope it's not a discouragement to you. I hope it's an encouragement to you that the Lord is aware the Lord is aware. He's aware that if you actually gave $61 to his kingdom somehow, that you didn't just give 60 And he's aware, and it matters to him. It matters to him that you honored him in the way that you did with the tribute or the things that you have, the blessing, the rewards of this life, that you used it in a way according to what God has asked you to do in your heart. Verse 42 then speaks of how the Lord's tribute from the children of Israel's half that was separated. And again, we won't bore you with those numbers. Look at verse 48. It then says, And then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of the thousands and captains of the hundreds, came near to Moses. And they said to Moses, Your servants have taken a count of the men of war who were under our command. So they're evaluating now their troops of 12,000 at the end of the war. And look what this says, verse 49. I have it underlined. And not a man of us is missing. Now, you remember the odds in that military conflict? And, and, and I want you to see that. They, they said, hey, we went afterwards, we checked among all the ranks, all the commanders, those, the men under their supervision, and not a single man is missing. The idea is not one casualty. Now, that's called a miracle. That's called miraculous preservation. That's called miraculous victory. This battle was a miracle of God. And the reason that they succeeded had nothing to do with their resources, had nothing to do with the arm of flesh, had nothing to do with they had a great you know, military strategy. It had everything to do with that they did what God was directing them to do. 
when God directed them to do it, they went about it the way God told them to and it was because the presence of God was leading them and with them. And that's why they were preserved in the midst of it. That's why they prospered in what they did. And you know what? Same thing with us. Victory has nothing to do with our resources, our ingenuity, our strategies, our ideas. You know, victory in the Christian life and in the battles that we face has to do with dependence upon the Lord and following the leading of the Lord and letting the Lord direct when we engage and when we don't engage. See, this was a battle where the Lord said, I want you to engage. I want you to engage. There are other times when they would have all the honking resources bigger than this little piddly group of people. And they look, are you kidding me? I mean, we can beat them with water pistols. And God would say, don't. And they, well, we can do this. I mean, come on, we can, we just, we're so experienced and we can do this. And they would engage and the odds would be so big in their favor and they would utterly suffer defeat. Why, do we, why are we defeat? Well, because God wasn't leading or you weren't depending upon the Lord. You did it in your... And then other times it'd be like this and, and, and the odds would be so against them but yet because God was with them and God was leading them and God's presence was with them, they would have incredible, incredible victories. And the same thing with our lives. Listen, your victory in your life is primarily dependent upon your trust and your reliance upon the Lord. Maybe you've been struggling in some area. Listen, it's not necessarily trying harder. It's not getting a better five-point strategy. It's not necessarily, it is reliance upon the Lord. What is the Lord leading you to do? And how is the Lord wanting to work in a way whereby at the end of it, you would say, like these people say, not a man of us is missing. And I guarantee you, as they're beginning to discover this, as they're going through and each commander is, can you imagine coming back saying, hey, all hundred of my guys are still alive. Are you kidding me? Mine are too. And one by one is the numbers and, and they're calculating, and they're real. Are you kidding me? Are, this is a, a miracle. Yeah, it's a miracle. Wow. To God be the glory. It's like the psalmist says, the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. And I thoroughly believe that, that that is the... I was just talking to someone the other day and, and I, look, I thoroughly, that is the way that God wants to work in all of our lives, in our small little conflicts and battles of our personal life to the things He does on a bigger scale. God wants to work in a way whereby He can get the greatest glory. And here, this was no doubt evident as they went through this. Wow, not a man is missing. And look what happens. The gratitude out of that, therefore as they realized God had just done a miracle for them. Therefore, we have brought an offering for the Lord what every man found of ornaments of gold, armlets and bracelets and signet rings and earrings and necklaces. Again, these people were known many times to have all types of jewelry. This was an easier way to carry your wealth. So they have all kinds of different gold and silver to make atonement for ourselves. Now you're talking a few hundred pounds of gold and silver here. I mean, what's, what's gold going for an ounce? I mean, the, 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 the wealth of this is pretty immense here. But they bring this now, notice, so Moses and Eliezer the priests receive the gold from them 
all the fashioned ornaments and the gold for the offering they offered to the Lord from the captains of thousands and captains of hundreds was 16,150 shekels. The men of war had taken spoil every man for himself and Moses and Eleazar the priest received the gold from the captains of thousands and hundreds brought it into the tabernacle of meeting as a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord. So here's what happens as this chapter closes. These people, they realize God has just done a marvelous thing. God has just worked in an incredible way. And verse 50, that first word, therefore, it's a responsive word. Because of what God's done, because of the goodness of God, the greatness of God, how kind and, and wonderful he has been to us, out of that responsiveness, therefore, we have brought, it says, an offering of all the spoils to the Lord. So again, I want you to see this. They're giving here unto the Lord an offering out of free will and out of gratitude. It's out of appreciation. This has nothing to do with something that was levied upon them. This particular offering here, now what we read in the prior verses, God did ask. This is the two percentage, for, you know, two percent of all the spoils from the whole congregation, you know, a little, about a little less than a quarter percent from the men of war. But this here is now an offering that's completely free will. It's not something that's required. It's not something that's a duty to them. It is strictly out of the appreciation in their hearts that is an act of worship. They want to give this unto the Lord as a way of thanking Him and blessing Him as they realize what He had done for them and that the only reason they received all they just received was because God gave them the victory and God allowed them to acquire all this that they just acquired. And let me just say, this is the most beautiful picture of what giving is supposed to be like. It's out of gratitude. It's out of appreciation. Paul says in the New Testament, where again, I don't believe tithing and the, I don't think these things are, I don't see these things mandated in the New Testament. These were principles from the Old Testament. I think we should look to them. We should glean from them. But in the New Testament, giving is based upon grace. The Bible says not to give grudgingly or of necessity, but to purpose in our heart as cheerful givers unto the Lord. Again, that as we cheerfully say, Lord, wow, you've been so good to me. God, you've given me a job and, and, and you, you allow me to make money. And Lord, you've blessed me in this way and that way. So Lord, therefore, out of that, I'm going to prayerfully purpose and determine what it is that I can give back to you as an act of worship. And again, does that mean that we should not use? I think we should. Principles from the scripture as a whole of, you know, sh you know, should I start with a tithe and add an offering to that? Listen, I I'm not here to tell you what the Spirit of God would direct you to do. What I can tell you is that the New Testament teaches that we should give purposefully, that we should give cheerfully out of gratitude and appreciation, not grudgingly, that we should give systematically and regularly. The Bible teaches that in the New Testament. And that we should give proportionately according to what God has blessed us with and what we purpose that we want to render back to the Lord. And here these people show this beautiful example. They give out of gratitude and appreciation. Lord, you've been so good to us. What you've done for us. They just, they want to give an offering to the Lord. And that's what matters to God. Again, as I've said before, you know, God doesn't ultimately need our resources. 
God's the controller and the one who's involved, you know, the one who provides resources to us. In a sense, we're just giving back to God something. Anything we give to the Lord. What the Lord wants is it to us to see that as another way of expressing worship to Him. In the same way that we express worship to Him in other ways. Again, that's the desire, the heart of God, that as we see the goodness of God in a responsive way, we say, Lord, this is just one more way I want to worship you. I want to offer something back to you. And again, ultimately, what does God want more than anything? He wants the heart attitude. He wants the sacrifice of praise. You know... It doesn't make sense, obviously, at this juncture. I thought we'd cover part of chapter 32 tonight. But, but perhaps the encouragement, the exhortation, maybe from the Lord for us tonight is this. Is to realize, first of all, if you're facing battles, it doesn't mean something's going wrong. It's part of life. And you're going to face battles and conflict until you go to heaven. Do you know when the battles are going to cease? When you're in heaven. That's when they're going to cease. There are going to be battles and conflicts. There are going to be some the Lord calls us to engage and others that just come pursuing us as the enemy starts attacking us. The Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces of wickedness. There are spiritual battles that we need to take the sword of the Lord and that we need to engage and that we need to put on the armor of God. God told them, arm yourselves for We need to put on the armor of God because there are spiritual battles. Life has its battles, but yet through those battles, God will purify us. And he'll put us through the fire, and as we stay in his word, he'll wash us with the water of his word. And in the midst of accomplishing victories in these battles, on top of that, God also is accomplishing things in you. Because he's bringing things up to your surface, where all of a sudden, the fire of the battle and all that, and you're getting put through the fire, and all of a sudden, I find, you know, this, I just, the fire starts bringing the impurity. Around. Wow, I'm really impatient still. And my wife's going, really? You just discovered that? You know. <laughs> well, I mean, I am really angry still. I just, I can't believe how angry I get still. I can't believe how, but and, and in the midst of that, God's bringing things up to the surface and saying, yeah, you're engaging battles, but at the same time, I'm bringing things to pass in your life and making you more Christ-like and growing you and purging you and developing you. And again, what does God want to do? He wants to ultimately work in such a way whereby we can say, like Paul in the New Testament, because of the life of Christ, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that God wants to show us, listen, I don't care about the odds. I don't care how many times that's defeated you before, I can give you victory over it. I don't care how overwhelming that looks and as if you should fail and you can't win and there's no way you should succeed and that you are going to suffer defeat. God wants to at times say to us, but listen, if I get involved and you allow me to lead and me to direct and let me fight the battle and you just walk step by step engaged with me, God wants us to see I can give victory that will blow your mind, preserve you through the most dangerous things and bring you out victorious without a stain or a cut or a wound and no casualties on the other side and give you victory in such a way where you go, whoa, Lord, that's incredible. And then it drives you on a Wednesday evening as you reflect upon that to say, wow, Lord, I got to worship you. How could I not worship you and give to you the sacrifice of what's in your wallet? Absolutely not. The sacrifice of praise. 
Lord, the sacrifice of praise. Lord, I want to give an offering of praise unto you because I can render that back to you in a responsible, again, not because I have to, not because it's a duty, not because, well, I should, that's what Christians are supposed to do. Christians are supposed to go to Wednesday night church if you're a good Christian, if you're an A-possible. If you're a B-possible, then you just go Sunday. No. Lord, I want to go. So therefore, Lord, I'm tired as a dog and I don't feel like going. But Lord, you've been so good to me. Lord, you've been so good to me. What a stupid waste of time it'd be to watch something else on the dumb television when I can go worship you and give you glory and experience your presence. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it says to us and reveals to us. And Lord, we just ask by your spirit as we spend the remainder of our evening here tonight just in worship, just sitting in your presence, enjoying you. Lord, that you, by your spirit, would stir in our hearts. Stir in our hearts, Lord, those things that you've spoken to us that would prompt us to responsively worship you and to praise you now this evening.